Good afternoon and welcome to the Guts and Glory Singapore General Hospital Gastroenterology Podcast. I'm Dylan. I'm Ching Han. And I'm Andrew. So today we'll go through the approach to interpreting liver function tests and how we evaluate uh, appropriately based on the clinical history. So today we have with us Dr. Tanesh Lee, Senior Consultant at the Singapore General Hospital Gastroenterology and Hepatology Department. He is also the Director for Clinical Service for the Sing Health Duke NUS Liver Transplant Center. So Dr. Tanesh, for our audiences, maybe you could you know, share a few words about yourself. I did my basic training overseas. So I actually trained in uh, Glasgow. Uh, and then I came back to Singapore, basically parachuted in as a registrar into the what was a shock of the Singapore system. And uh, who would know? 10, oh no, 12 years on, I'm, I'm still here. Lah. So I, 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 I must be a sucker for punishment. My main area of interest is uh, hepatology, in particular, acute liver injury and liver transplantation. That's why it's, it's actually important for me to uh, actually remember my, my basic stuff because uh, you know patients often, often present with a variety uh, or different symptom, symptomatology and, and sometimes teasing apart uh, the nuances uh, of their presentation and, and interpreting their blood tests can, can be quite complex. So if, if you have good grounding in basics, then um, it actually helps you a lot the further along you go. No, I mean, um, I remember coming back to Singapore as well, roughly around the same time as, as Dinesh. Yes. So uh, we both graduated from different universities. I mean, he's the second best university in, in Scotland. Oh, again. yeah. yeah because, uh, <laughs> Edinburgh is probably the elite university in Scotland. But Yeah, uh, also I mean, the most boring. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, I mean, Dinesh, I mean, um, this career choice in hepatology, uh, do you ever regret it or do you enjoy it? No, I don't. I fully enjoy it. Um, I, I picked something that had um, a balance of uh, physiology and complex patients as well as uh, a hands-on component, you know, the endoscopic component of, of gastro. That, that's why I wanted to do it. Originally, uh, you know, I, I was a naive medical student who wanted to be a surgeon. Uh, what a fool I was at that time. But, you know, working uh, very quickly put me right. And then uh, I wanted to do intensive care because I, I really do enjoy the acute and uh, for want of a better word, messy aspect uh, of patient care. I, I was doing a, a fair amount of acute medicine in the UK. And then when I came back, various events conspired uh, to push me away from uh, intensive care, which I will not go into, but more towards uh, gastroenterology in particular, the, the patient with uh, acute liver failure. Uh, that, that was a group of patients that I really enjoyed managing. Outside of work, let's say um, when you're not at work, busy transplanting livers. So what do you usually do in your free time? I do Aikido, uh, specifically Yoshinkan Aikido, uh, which is a martial art. If you want to know what Aikido is like, then I think uh, it's easy to Google a YouTube of uh, Steven Seagal. But if you really want to master uh, go and Google uh, Joe Tambu, uh, which is this shorter Indian male who's uh, from Malaysia, but who's actually now residing in Melbourne in Australia. He's he's got skills. If you if you see him move, uh, he's like a carpet gliding around um, the arena. So so that's what I'm I'm aiming to be. Uh, but uh, yeah, so I do Aikido in my spare time. Uh, I've got two cats and two dogs, so a fair amount of work goes into looking after them. Uh, and, and of course, trying to keep the wife happy on the side. 
the audience can figure out. There was a story of a gastro consultant who tried to do Aikido and seriously injured himself. Right, so one day you may find out who this individual is. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would like to say that I was not teaching that day. And I ironically, uh, perhaps because the technique did work, he was injured after someone who was a lot smaller of the opposite gender threw him and, and he wasn't looking after himself and he went over badly. So, you know, but, but it shows you the, the, the techniques work. But that consultant shall forever go unnamed. Okay, Dylan, so can you take us through the what we have today in store for, for Tinesh? Okay, so moving on to the case, uh, today we have Mr. John Diz. He's a 23-year-old man who presents to the ED with John Diz, malaise and upper abdominal discomfort for the last one week. Initial labs reveal a total protein of 70, albumin of 36, bilirubin of 90, alkaline phosphatase of 140, ALT is 1,432, and ASC is 983. GGT was 74. So Dr. Dinesh, you know, if this sort of patient was admitted under your service, you know, what would your initial approach be and how would you go about interpreting the pattern of liver injury? Okay, uh, uh, thanks Dylan. So before I start going into interpreting the LFTs, I'd like to say just a couple of things. And that is what we started off with, which is history. I'm sure time and time again, as medical students and, and as junior doctors, it's been stressed that history is important and, and it is. Uh, particularly here, because it provides context towards the blood test that you're trying to interpret. If you're trying to interpret something out of context, very often you might actually come to the wrong diagnosis. Uh, for example, if you look at ABGs, you need to know how much oxygen the patient is on. If you don't, your normal PO2 may actually indicate someone who is actually struggling uh, and on the verge of tipping over. So so history is, is of the greatest importance. If you remember nothing else, please remember this. The other smaller rules would be you should look at the whole LFT as a panel. Never look at it in isolation. Sometimes the trend changes and that actually tells you what the disease is. So be wary about treating the initial LFT as uh, the, the be-all and end-all. The prothrombin time is very important because that tells you whether the liver is functioning or not. And uh, don't forget, other organs can often cause the LFTs to become abnormal. So uh, back to the case, we have a young man who is jaundiced, has got these non-specific symptoms of malaise and upper abdominal discomfort, and you have his LFTs. The first thing I tend to do is uh, I tend to look at the pattern of liver injury in the context of the history. And generally, there are three main types of patterns. Uh, that's hepatocellular, that's cholestatic, and that's mixed. And uh, basically, this helps uh, guide me as to the etiology um, of his liver disease. I think this has been uh, going around for a little while, but uh, sometimes it can be difficult to interpret LFTs, especially um, you know if they're in that gray area. And you can use something called the R-ratio. It's really your ALT over the upper limit of normal divided by your alkaline phosphatase over the upper limit of normal. And based on your R ratio, you can determine whether it's hepatocellular, meaning to say it's affecting mainly the hepatocytes, it's cholestatic, meaning it's probably obstructive or it's a biliary type injury, or it's a mixed picture where both these components uh, are involved. I generally pick the upper limits of normal as an ALT of 30 and an alkaline phosphatase of 110. And uh, there's actually good biopsy data out there to explain why these uh, upper limits 
upper limits of normal are, are valid, unlike um, our local SGH uh, limits, which are, are really far, far too high. Uh, going back to the patient, his ALT is uh, incredibly high at uh, 1,004. And at this level, you're thinking of not just hepatocyte inflammation, but you're actually thinking of hepatocyte injury uh, or necrosis. And uh, if you divide that by 30, you get a very high value uh, versus an alkaline phosphatase, which is only really just slightly elevated. So this patient quite clearly has a hepatocellular pattern of liver injury. Now, what might the etiology be? Because that, that would be your next question. I kind of artificially divide uh, ALT elevations uh, into mild, moderate, and severe. Mild elevations would be those which are uh, perhaps less than 100. That's an easy number to remember. And uh, when it's less than 100, you're thinking uh, of the more chronic pathologies, something slow brewing, chronic hepatitis C, chronic hepatitis B, or even fatty liver. And then when you get higher elevations, uh, which are about one to 300, basically about three to 10 times upper limit of normal, then you think of more acute issues like uh, all the above, uh, that is hep C, hep B, and fatty liver, including alcoholic hepatitis, uh, steatohepatitis, uh, autoimmune hepatitis, as well as Wilson's disease. When the number goes above more than a thousand, then actually it gets quite easy your number of diagnosis actually becomes very, very few things. It's usually acute viral hepatitis, acute hep B or acute hep C, paracetamol overdose, which uh, can look very much like a viral, viral hepatitis, and ischemic liver. Uh, but in ischemic liver, that's where the, the AST is usually very high. So this patient uh, has an ALT of 1,004, and that kind of makes it easy because then it puts him in this group, which have these very few diagnoses. He's young. Um, and I'm guessing here, but I, I think he would probably be sexually active. And that's where I'm going to go down the route of um, acute viral hep. Of course, one would have to um, illustrate things like uh, alcohol intake, uh, paracetamol or traditional Chinese medicine use, uh, so on and so forth. So that's the possible causes. Importantly, the fact that he is jaundiced uh, should also be a matter of concern because that means that the liver has decompensated. If the bilirubin is normal, then you know actually the liver isn't suffering too badly. But because the bilirubin is high, uh, such that he is jaundiced, you know that, that the liver is actually struggling to clear um, whatever it is, uh, clear the bilirubin from the system. So that's actually the second part which I assess and is probably more important than just the etiology, uh, which is evidence of liver dysfunction. So the first thing I, I assess is pattern of injury because that tells me about etiology. And then the second thing I assess is um, whether there's any liver dysfunction. That is, are they jaundiced? Is the PT raised? Um, are they encephalopathic? Because then that makes me worry. This is a patient whose liver may fail and I need to think about uh, higher level therapies, uh, be it uh, um, liver dialysis or even liver transplantation. Uh, and, and in these patients, I would also be a little bit more aggressive in terms of getting a liver biopsy. You know, if you have someone who's jaundiced, I wouldn't wait around to see if or if not, they wouldn't improve. I, I might actually uh, sort of uh, proceed uh, much more aggressively, treat them much, much earlier. You know, you've got your 
pattern of liver injury, which is clearly hepatocellular. And so you're going to ask questions uh, about things like risk factors for viral hepatitis, uh, risk factors for blood-borne viruses. And of course, if you're going down that route, you're also going to exclude some of your sexually transmitted diseases um, like HIV. You clearly need to evaluate for um, drug ingestion uh, or supplements or traditional medicines. Um, I find it helpful not just to ask patients if they are taking traditional Chinese medicines, but I also ask them, are they drinking any herbs? Did anyone give them any supplements that they like that they are taking for their health? And that can sometimes reveal uh, interesting results. You know, the patient doesn't consider that herbal remedy that they got from their friend as a traditional Chinese medicine, when actually it's it it may be the medicine itself that's causing the problem. But because some of these um, so-called Chinese medicines are not regulated, they're marketed as health product or food products. And when they're marketed as food products, they can often contain contaminants. And those contaminants can be part of the problem. On physical examination, you'd want to assess um, for features of chronicity uh, because that, that's actually the third part of what I assess because then that tells you about patients who um, may be able to tolerate insult. So for example, if, got, if they've got evidence of spider nevi, if they've got evidence of ascites, uh, gynecomastia, uh, loss of axillary hair, then, and these are all features of chronic liver disease, then I know that the disease has actually been persisting for a while. And if it's been persisting for a while, then I'm going to look at something that's more chronic. In this case, something chronic that's caused an acute hit. Uh, and of course, if someone has got chronic liver disease, then they won't have that functional reserve to tolerate um, a new acute insult. So, so that that would be my my thought process for this patient. So, uh, I guess just to briefly summarize, for him, the pattern of injury is is hepatocellular quite clearly. The possible causes, given the fact that he's young, he's male, his symptoms have only been for about a week. I would be thinking about uh, acute causes like acute viral hepatitis paracetamol overdose or, or ischemic hepatitis. The history will quite easily rule out ischemic hepatitis. And then, of course, you want to look at the sexual history. You want to look at his family history. If someone in his family has ever had chronic viral hepatitis, you want to look at his drugs, his alcohol pattern. And, and also, it's important to look uh, at his work. Perhaps he might uh, be working as a, in a factory where they environment is not very clean and, and perhaps he'll be exposed to things like, uh, for example, rats, where rats might pee in the, the food or the urine source and that will result in Wheels disease. About, but Wheels disease wouldn't usually present in this way, but you know it, it gets you thinking uh, about casting a broad net uh, of possible diagnosis and, and you do your investigation to narrow it down uh, to what you think is most likely and then you treat appropriately. So, so Dinesh, one of the questions that commonly are asked is, is the magnitude of LFT elevation an issue? So uh, if you see your LFTs, I mean your ALT, EST in the thousands, um, does that mean the patient is sicker? That's one. The, the second question is for alkaline phosphatase, what's the best way to evaluate that? Is it a fractionated ALT? Um, do you do GGT? Right? So that's a second popular question. Another popular question is for drug-induced liver injury which are the ones that we really should be worried about because statins seem to dominate the discussion a lot, although we know that that's probably not the big culprit. Uh, so you can take your pick, any of these three questions, answer in order. 
Oh, well, uh, I, I think all the three questions are, are very relevant. And if we have time, I'd actually like to answer all of them. ALT, AST elevation, um, if it's less than roughly 10 times the limit of normal, it's usually okay. And usually elevations of more than a thousand tell you that there's significant hepatocyte necrosis. That is the cells are not just inflamed, but the cells are being destroyed. And that is important to know. That being said, you have to pair this together with their baseline liver. So meaning to say, if I saw someone who had acute liver disease, meaning they have a normal liver, they've um, gotten an acute insult, the ALT is about 200, 300. I'm really not going to be that worried because with a normal liver, the liver has a, a great regenerative uh, potential. And uh, if they're not jaundiced, then they can be managed outpatient. However, if a patient has got um, decompensated liver cirrhosis, and, and let's say they've had chronic hepatitis B for many years, and they suddenly get an insult where the ALT goes up to two or 300, well, then, then they have very little reserve that they can rely on. And that kind of patient may decompensate much, much, much more rapidly than your other patient who's got a normal liver. So the absolute ALT-AST is not that important compared to the baseline function of the liver and if they've got any signs of decompensation. Just to be clear, signs of decompensation would be jaundice, elevation of the prothrombin time, or the development of SITs, uh, as well as encephalopathy. So if, if any of those decompensating events emerge, then that is a patient who is in big, big trouble. There are patients whom we sometimes see who have had a cardiac arrest where the AST goes up into the thousands. And that's because AST is a mitochondrial enzyme primarily. Uh, so the ischemic injury causes the AST to shoot up. But if you maintain the blood pressure well, you actually see that uh, the AST comes down very rapidly. And these patients do not have any long-term liver disease. So ALT, AST gives you an idea, uh, but really you should be looking for signs of liver decompensation. I think the second question was on alkaline phosphatase. That <laughs> is a, a difficult question to answer. And actually many uh, experienced doctors actually grapple uh, or struggle to grapple with alkaline phosphatase. The easiest way to discriminate alkaline phosphatase from a liver disease is to look at the gamma GT. If the alkaline phosphatase is high and the gamma GT is high, then it's coming from the liver. If the alkaline phosphatase is high, but the gamma GT is normal, then you got to look somewhere else. And uh, alkaline phosphatase can come from many sources. Uh, it can uh, um, come from the bones, uh, which is typically the source that we most often think of. And that's why we hardly ever fractionate alkaline phosphatase anymore. We really just look at the gamma GT. It can come from the intestines. If you have renal impairment, that can also cause alkaline phosphatase levels to go up. So alkaline phosphatase can kind of be non-specific and can be difficult to evaluate. But the easy answer to determining if it's from the liver or not is just to look at the gamma GT. If it is coming from the liver, then the first thing you need to do is get imaging because you want to exclude any obstructive cause of their liver disease. And that's easy enough to do. It can be an ultrasound, a CT scan, or an MRI scan. If you cannot demonstrate any obvious large obstructive cause and the alkaline phosphatase is still very high, then you may want to consider liver biopsy to look at the microscopic level. So that's generally the, um, uh, the pathway uh, that I would choose for evaluating alkaline phosphatase. What was the third question? 
Oh yes, what, what are the main culprits? Yes, is, is, do we have to blame statins for everything? Or okay. <laughs> I'm glad you brought this up. Statins have a really bad reputation for causing LFT derangement, but really statins are, are really quite benign. I run a drug-induced liver injury clinic, and um, really often I I get sent patients with uh, alleged statin-induced uh, drug uh, drug-induced liver disease, and really when I restart the statin, um, nothing happens. Statin can cause some mild elevations to your ALT and AST, but that is not the same as saying that they are causing disease. Statins actually are very, very safe. And more often than not, a transient elevation in your LFTs might just be due to a asymptomatic viral infection. As simple as that. Interestingly enough, the, the most common cause of uh, drug-induced liver injury, to me anyway, is actually augmented. Now, obviously, I see a bit of a biased group of patients because I will only see the patients who have abnormal LFTs and, and then they get sent to me. But uh, Augmentin is notorious for causing a cholestatic liver disease. Just a word of caution. Just because someone has Augmentin-induced liver injury does not mean that they cannot take penicillin. Really, Augmentin is a combination of clavulinic acid as well as amoxicillin. And it's not the amoxicillin component that causes the cholestasis, it's the clavulinic acid component. And if you label someone as having a bad side effect or allergic to penicillins, unfortunately, that means that you take out a huge group of useful antibiotics and thus you impact their future care. You may get uh, doctors who are cautious about using cephalosporins because of this uh, possibility for cross-reactivity with penicillins. And, and that means all of a sudden you can't use penicillins and you can't use uh, cephalosporins. And then what are you left with? Uh, second and third line drugs, which is really not fair to the patient. So if I come across anyone with augmentin-induced liver injury, I usually put it down as uh, clavulinic acid. And it means that uh, whoever manages them in the future can still uh, give them penicillins. Drug-induced liver injury is, is a tough one. Uh, we have no marker. It's really very much a black box and uh, any drug can cause anything to anyone. And, and that's because we understand very little. There may be um, adduct formation. So you get like a toxic metabolite that actually damages the liver or it may be an immunoallergic component. But we have really no way of, of determining uh, which pathway this very well. Uh, often enough, we get liver biopsies to see if there's any autoimmune component, in which case then we can treat that with steroids. So if anybody is uh, looking for a career as a hepatologist and is interested enough to go into drug-induced liver injury, I promise you there's a mountain of work ahead of you. Okay, thank you so much, Dr. Tinesh. Uh, I think you've went through quite a fair bit of information, uh, you know, going through the initial approach uh, to a patient with abnormal liver function tests, as well as uh, categorizing some of the various causes of uh, liver injury. So moving back to the case, uh, you know, further history reveals that this patient has been feeling under the weather for the past one week. Uh, there has been nausea and poor appetite, which accompanied a vague upper abdominal discomfort. His family has also noticed that his skin has turned more yellow. Uh, he has no recent travel history. He doesn't take any chronic medications, supplements, or traditional medications. Uh, he is a social drinker. On examination, there's a low-grade temperature of 37.8 degrees, but he is hemodynamically stable. He appears jaundiced and tired-looking, but is still conversant and not confused. There is mild tenderness in the epigastric area, but no abdominal guarding. There is also no asteresis, no tattoos or needle marks. What additional investigations uh, on top of what you've already gone through should be done to evaluate for the causes and complications of liver injury? 
Okay, so so for this patient, social drinker is is a bit of a vague term. I, I know some people who are very very sociable, and so they they consume far higher amounts of alcohol than others. It's important to try and and get something a little bit more specific, like how many units a week. As a rough guide, a shot of uh, heavy liquor like uh, tequila, whiskey, rum, you can just take it as one unit. A large glass of wine, that's about 250 mils, is about two units of alcohol. And a a pint of uh, lager is roughly about two units. If someone is drinking extra strong lager, then it's about three units. So that's kind of easy way to sort of remember these numbers. And, and really, you're just trying to get at the general trend rather than drill down exactly, you know, is it 42, is it 43, or is it 44 units? After you get past 14 units, it, it really doesn't matter. Now, in, in terms of evaluating this patient, so it's important to note that he's jaundiced, so you know his bilirubin will be at least 40 micromoles per liter. Tired looking, um, so he's clearly feeling unwell. Uh, he's conversant and not confused. So there is... Uh, no evidence of overt hepatic encephalopathy. Uh, Some patients can have minimal hepatic encephalopathy, which is important to elucidate. And that can be something as benign as sleep-wake reversal. Uh, So they end up sleeping a lot in the day and they can't sleep at night. And that may be a feature of uh, minimal hepatic encephalopathy. Uh, If you have the time, you can do simple psychometric testing uh, like connect the numbers test, for example. And that helps uh, ascertain whether, you know, in the absence of a flat, whether their concentration is up to scratch or not. And honestly, if he had minimal signs of hepatic encephalopathy, that's where I'd be getting a little bit worried. But if he could do this psychometric test very well, you know, then, then you know, that patient will probably be okay. The pattern of the LFTs and the history will kind of point you clues towards etiology and uh, for this patient, that's where I would be looking, like I said, at uh, acute viral hepatitis, uh, in particular, Hep B and Hep C. A simple history will evaluate whether he's been taking paracetamol or not. Uh, and and um, it doesn't seem like this patient who came to a is someone who would naturally hide that. Um, it's good that he's been examined. And, and in particular, someone has taken note that there are no tattoos or needle marks. You should also examine the groin. Because some patients uh, or some IV drug users, they may run out of excess in the anticubital fossa, or they may not, or they may want to hide their drug-seeking behavior. In which case, then they'll be injecting in the groins, and that's an area that's uh, often missed. You know, because we feel embarrassed or shy about exposing these areas properly. You know, the only way to do a proper assessment is is basically just throw off those shackles of uh, shyness, and basically expose the patient and and uh, examine. Very often, these patients can have a low-grade temperature, and and that's probably because of the underlying inflammation. So for this man, investigation-wise, I would evaluate for uh, for acute viral hepatitis. You can check a paracetamol level if he's been taking paracetamol, but really a history should give you that, and a history will also um, rule out ischemic hepatitis. Then I would stratify if this patient is someone that I should really be worried about maybe whether I should start treatment early. And that's where I look for evidence of, as mentioned here, jaundice, um, hepatic encephalopathy, SITs. And of course, I would check his prothrombin time to see if that's elevated. I would probably have a low threshold to start uh, something like N-acetylcysteine because in patients who have uh, acute liver failure, even if they 
let's say haven't been taking paracetamol, it's been shown that N-acetylcysteine um, can actually improve their outcomes without a liver transplant. We really have a severe lack um, of livers uh, or donor livers in Singapore. And so we should be doing everything that we can to actually stabilize the patient and prevent the need for a liver transplant. The main two things would be uh, the prothrombin time uh, and uh, evidence of encephalopathy. Those, those are the two main things I'd be worried about. You would definitely do your basic blood tests. In particular, uh, you need some form of liver imaging. Usually, an ultrasound is adequate. If this was, a let's say, a different patient, a pregnant lady, and you were worried about a coagulable state, and you were worried about butt Chiari syndrome, then you'd actually want to get a CT scan uh, to evaluate the uh, vein outflow. Your other option is to use a Doppler uh, for that, but you need some form of imaging. To me, the real LFTs is really the um, PT, prothrombin time, perhaps the platelets, and investigating or examining the patient for any evidence of hepatic encephalopathy. That, that's what would make me worried. Uh, very often, even if the patient is recovering, the bill tends to lag behind the prothrombin time. So if you see the prothrombin time coming down, but the bill either still going up or still plateauing, I'd say you don't have to be worried. But uh, if the PT is going up, regardless of whatever is happening to the bill, I'd be very concerned. I would want this patient evaluated ideally by a hepatologist. In SGH, we have a gastro liver service, which is specifically for liver patients. And the reason is uh, there are subtle nuances to how patients decompensate and uh, you cannot afford to lose time. When you lose time, uh, time is a resource that, that you will never get back. And uh, in, in such cases, the, the patients may actually become too sick for life-saving treatments. Uh, for these patients, when we work them up for transplant, we do a whole slew of blood tests. Uh, but really, uh, I think as long as you do your full blood count, watch the kidney function, um, do your LFTs, and you trend it to see the pattern, definitely watch the PT like a hawk and examine the patient daily for evidence of hepatic encephalopathy. That's, that's as a minimum of what you should do. What treatments should you start? Well, there are two types of treatments. There are treatments that are targeted at the underlying disease process, and there are treatments that are targeted to support the patient. Uh, and of course, I guess a third uh, set of treatments would be those for symptomatic relief. Because uh, often when these patients are, have acute liver disease, they often get a severe itch. With regards to the underlying disease process, well, that's what your blood tests and your investigations are for. If you determine they have got hepatitis B, then, well, you need to start hepatitis B treatment. If it's something like autoimmune hepatitis, uh, then really you'll be wanting to pulse the patient with steroids. In terms of managing um, the worsening PT or bilirubin, for acute liver failure patients, we usually give them anastalcysteine. And if they progress, we sometimes do plasma exchange. This is a form of liver dialysis. It's a high-level treatment and, and not something you would be initiating without consultation with a hepatologist. Some people might ask, well, what about uh, things like MARS, uh, which is a molecular absorption recirculating system? And that's a form of liver dialysis together with uh, uh, SPADE, which is sing single-pass albumin diacylate. Unfortunately, those treatments, uh, although they've been able to bridge patients, they can very often make the underlying coagulopathy worse. 
and then the patients become more unstable and challenging to manage. I have to say my my personal experience of MARS has been pretty uh, poor because I've seen a lot of complications happen. So I'm actually more an advocate for plasma exchange if a patient should need that kind of therapy. When we see these patients, we try not to correct the coagulation because number one, you actually need to use the PT to monitor how the patient is doing. Uh, The second thing you should also note is that uh, whether someone bleeds or not, is not just based on your prothrombin time because your prothrombin time only measures the clotting factors. There are also the anti-clotting factors, uh, the activated protein CNS, as well as antithrombin 3. And many of these factors are also produced by the liver. So patients in acute liver failure are actually pro-thrombotic, except that the numbers are so bad that we're worried about them bleeding. And sometimes when we give them things like FFP, we may actually inadvertently raise the portal pressure or increase the risk of intravascular thrombosis, which may actually go on to destabilize the patient. So, so you, can, you can see when, when a patient goes down the route of uh, acute liver failure, um, I would say there are probably more unknowns uh, than knowns, but at, at least now we are much better at knowing what we don't know, such that we, we don't give treatments just for the sake of correcting numbers, but ultimately targeted towards um, overall patient improvement. Some of these patients get a severe itch. Uh, unfortunately, uh, management of itch is, well, for one, we don't even know why itch happens. I, I used to teach that it used to be due to um, insoluble bile acids being sequestered in uh, the uh, tissues in the skin. Uh, but actually, I've, I've, I've found out and I did more reading and I've actually learned that's the wrong thing to be teaching people. We don't actually understand the mechanisms of, of itch. And um, when a patient's liver is working, they have itch. When a patient's liver dies and fails, the itch disappears. And, and that's when you would have thought that the bile acid uh, accumulation in the body is really more severe. Um, like I said, treatments are not very good. We do give antihistamines. We sometimes use ursodeoxycholic acid as well as a cholestyramine, which sequesters bile acids. I've actually used uh, opioid antagonists, something called methylnaltrexone, uh, which doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier, allegedly, and actually takes away the itch. But unfortunately, most patients get severe side effects. Um, they often feel have this feeling of dysphoria, spaced out. They feel like they're walking on pillows, or, or when they go to sleep, they are like floating six feet above the bed. And that's a very uncomfortable, disorientating feeling. You can use rifampicin for the itch as well, but rifampicin in itself can also cause uh, a hepatitis, and it is a well-documented cause of drug-induced liver injury. You know, if you have someone with a liver that's undergoing an insult and you're using rifampicin, I would say go cautiously and not without the advice of a hepatologist. You can use antihistamines and, and those are pretty safe. Also, the oxycholic acid is also pretty safe, but don't start it too aggressively. If you start aggressively, patients often get uh, GI upset, like um, um, indigestion, bloatedness, diarrhea, and then after that, someone will be referring them to Andrew, and then he'll stop the ERSO and then the itch will come back. So if you're going to start ERSO, start it slow, and I usually start, I don't know, one tablet, you know, once a day for a week, and then after that, I increase it to two or three tablets, depending on how much they need. Thank you, Dr. Dinesh, uh, for the very informative discussion so far. We have gone through a lot of information. Uh, so, so far, we have talked about evaluation of liver function tests, including the various patterns of liver injury and the various etiologies that can cause a hepatocellular pattern of injury. At this point, Dr. Dinesh, what are some clinical pearls that you would like to share with the listeners today? I guess uh, the most important thing I would say is, is what I said at the start, which is 
remember the history, always manage the patient in the correct or interpret the LFTs in the correct clinical context. That's invaluable. And if you remember nothing else, remember this. The other things that I would like to stress would be when I look at uh, LFTs, I go down the, this uh, workflow of looking for pattern of injury, whether it's hepatocellular, cholestatic, or mixed. And then after that, I assess for severity of liver dysfunction. That's important because then you know which are the patients you should be worried about or the ones that you can follow up um, less aggressively or in an outpatient clinic. And thirdly, you want to assess the LFTs uh, or their bloods for any level of cirrhosis or baseline chronic liver disease because that has bearing on their functional reserve or their ability to tolerate any insults. Don't forget the protrombin time. In the liver world, uh, although it's not a good marker of bleeding tendency, it is a very, very good marker of liver function. Thank you so much, Dr. Dinesh. And thank you for your insightful advice as well. Uh, With that, we've come to the end of the episode. Uh, To our listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. And thank you so much once again, Dr. Dinesh, for coming down and uh, speaking to us today about uh, approaching liver function tests. Cheerio. Thank you.